Our scripture reading this morning will come from two passages. We'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. And then our second reading will come from 1 Peter chapter 2, the first 10 verses, the ones that precede our sermon text. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. And it'll be mentioned in the sermon as well, the, how the Lord equips his people to be able to fend off our sinful nature and the schemes of the devil. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, we'll read through to verse 20. And here we read together, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. Let us now turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read the first 10 verses. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our sermon text for this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we will be looking closely at verses 11 and 12. And here we read together, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the passage before us this morning is, is a point of transition in Peter's letter to the believers in Asia Minor. Having discussed who the Christian is, Peter is now addressing the beloved with how they must live out this identity. And verses 9 through 10 help us understand the identity of a Christian. Here we read that since God has caused Christians to be born again, they are a chosen race. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. They are a people of God's own possession. And for this reason, Christians are beneficiaries of God's mercy. They receive God's mercy. All these titles are granted to them through the faith that has been worked in them and unites them with Jesus Christ. And in, and in this, we, we notice an expression of God's love and grace. And the address, beloved, it reflects this reality. When Jesus was baptized and the, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, we are told in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, that a, that a voice came from heaven which spoke these words, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so, brothers and sisters, Christians share in this anointing of the Holy Spirit by faith. 
So they are sons and daughters of the Most High God, deemed worthy to be addressed as beloved. They are now citizens of His kingdom, and their allegiance has been claimed by Him. So Peter rightly calls the Christians sojourners and exiles. This is a reminder to them that their journey on earth is but a temporary one. And that one day they will be restored to their promised eternal dwelling place, which is in, which is in the presence of God. It would be good for us to keep in mind that this applies to God's people of all times and places. This was the case for Abraham, for the Christians in Asia Minor, and is still the case for us today. And now remember that, that God has inspired Peter to write this passage to his people in a, in a first century world, which is, a, which is in a Roman context. They are just a, a few decades removed from Jesus walking the earth. The Holy Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost. And Christianity is evidently spreading across the empire, the Roman Empire. And although this is the case, it is a world of, of increased frustration towards those who believe in Jesus. Christians are facing many spiritual pressures Internally and externally. Internally, as their life was to be dedicated to, to battling sin. And externally, as they interact with the world around them. While being a reflection of, of God's work in them. And this is Peter's concern here. The eternal welfare of all people their salvation. And with this in mind, I present the, the living word to you this morning under this theme and points. Our theme, Peter urges the beloved to live as God's people. Live as God's people. And we'll look at two points. For their own salvation. And then our second point, for the salvation of others. So Peter urges the beloved to live as God's people for their own salvation, and for the salvation of others. Our first point then, for their own salvation. Having ex explained to the Christians who God has declared them to be, Peter now sees it necessary to exhort or, or to preach to them about their walk of life. The first of these exhortations we find in verse 11, where we read once again, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is the first item that Peter urges the Christians to do, to abstain or refrain or distance themselves from the passions of the flesh. And what does Peter mean when he says passions of the flesh? Well, although Peter does not explicitly mention at this moment what he is referring to, 
Later on in chapter 4, he provides us with an idea of what, is, what he has on his mind. And so let us turn then to chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we will begin at, we will look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And here we have a list. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That last one, lawless idolatry can be thought of of, of any as anything outside of god that can be used for devotion to ourselves it is obvious that these lifestyles directly contrast the life that peter mentions in chapter one where in verse 13 he told the christians to prepare their minds for action and to be sober-minded and to set their hope fully not partially but, but fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter goes on to write why, why they must abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is because they wage war against the soul. Beloved, every war has two sides. In this war against the, the believer's soul. One side, on one side we have the, the kingdom of light, where Christ is king and the believer has been drafted. And on the other side we have the, the kingdom of darkness, where we must contend with our, with our own sinful desires and inclinations. And now this may cause us to pause and, and, and think, has not the battle been won? Christ has died. He is risen. Has he not claimed victory for us? And yes, yes, he most certainly has, brothers and sisters. As those who believe, we, we are certain. We are certain of his victory and live in that victory. However, in the aftermath of wars, even once one side claims victory, there are still battles that go on. Towards the the end of World War II, for example, the German high command refused. They refused to accept that they had lost the war. And for months, the war dragged on, claiming many lives from both sides. So, too, the, desi- the sinful desires of our flesh can trench in, refusing to surrender and trying desperately to gain possession of our soul. And this may leave us discouraged. It forces us to accept that as sojourners here on earth, the dangers are, are still present. However, God does not leave our, our souls unattended. Oh no, he, he, he faithfully equips us for the battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, which we read together, 
Paul reminds the believer of the armor, the armor that God provides his soldiers. And that includes you as well, boys and girls. You too are a soldier in the Lord's army. So you too are given armor. And this armor, that the belt of truth, the shield of faith, helmets of salvation, and the others, is the reason we are able to withstand the, the schemes, able to withstand the schemes of our, of our sinful desires that try to deceive us. As we can imagine, God does not leave His people on the battlefield unattended. No, not at all. He provides us with an ample defensive arsenal. We are fully equipped by God to defend our souls from the enemy. Let us then not live as those who do not have armor. As God's children, we are called to, and read this in in verse 9, we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It can happen that those fully equipped with the armor of God become arrogant, become proud, complacent, and decide not to use use what God has provided. The, the, The flaming darts, they come, but they do not raise their shields in defense. In fact, some may actively position themselves in harm's way, inviting the blows of the enemy upon the body. And after a while, the the damage becomes great, and it may happen that they no longer will desire to proclaim the excellencies of King Jesus as vibrant as they once did. And eventually, the, the, the joyful shouts, the joyful shouts of, I am free through him who ransomed me, will become cries of despair as they find themselves enslaved by the enemy. If this is where any of us find ourselves this morning, my family, enslaved by the the passions of the flesh and darkness filling our hearts, pray for deliverance. Repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness. Ask your King, Jesus Christ, to rescue you on the battlefield. If you find yourself greatly wounded because you have engaged in sensuality, mindfully allowing your your eyes to look where they ought not to, or because you are enslaved to alcohol, or in in particular to the month of June if you are struggling with same-sex attraction. Cry out to Him for help. If you are lost in the darkness of sin, cry out to Him for help. He will hear our cry. Humble yourself into his protection and care. 
He knows the battlefield well. He walked this earth himself in perfect obedience. Ask him to penetrate the darkness of your heart with his radiant light, that he may create a desire within you to do his will, that he may be willing to profess, that we would be willing to profess his goodness and exalt his name among the nations, and that we may bear fruits of thankfulness before him. Pray that your king may equip you with his word and spirit, that you may actively battle sin, act, actively battle the passions of your flesh. Brothers and sisters, as we heard earlier in this worship service, our Lord directs us not to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he is that but as he who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Our Lord warns us that human ignorance leads to conformity to the passions of the flesh. This is why we pray for our wills to be transformed more and more to God's will, and that as a result, our conduct our actions may demonstrate God's mercy. Does this ring a bell? This is how our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, lived his life. And he did so perfectly. And we are called to strive to be imitators of him. And this will lead us to our second point, that is, Peter urges the beloved to live as God's people for the salvation of others. In our second point and exhortation, Peter issues another command towards believers. But now it is centered on how the Christian behaves, behaves in the world. Having placed the importance in the first exhortation on the believer's eternal well-being, Peter transitions to how the believer's actions must reflect, how they must reflect this well-being. He writes in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The identity of the Gentiles should be considered as those who do not desire to do God's will those yet living in their ignorance. And among such people, we are to behave honorably. And what does this mean, behave honorably? There are a couple things we need to keep in mind. The Christians, having been transformed, the Christians' reason for behaving honorably has changed. We do not behave honorably simply to garner respect in the communities that, in which we live, but rather we behave honorably to proclaim God's excellencies through our deeds. That is the main purpose. It is an act of, of, of beautiful obedience to the king. And why is it that Peter commands the Christians to behave in a way that proclaims God's excellencies? 
because as we, as we read on, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see, they may see your good deeds. Beloved, Peter knows that the world is watching. Whether it be the church at large or whether it be individual believers, the world is watching. And that is why the believer's behavior is, is so important. Because we are not repre- representing just ourselves, but also the King, that is Jesus, who has claimed us. As a way of illustration, we could think of our, of our Canadian or, or American, Australian or, or South African citizenship. Citizens that travel to another country, such as Canada to Brazil or, or Australia to Indonesia, may be observed by the locals. And the locals likely will form perceptions of the country we come from by the, by the way or, the, or how we behave. If we behave poorly, the country we represent will be thought of as uh, thought of poorly. If we behave well, the country we represent will be thought of as well among all the locals. And so too, a similar scenario can happen with the behavior of the believer. How the professed Christian behaves on earth speaks volumes to the world. Now, knowing this, we must be somewhat careful. Often our our impulse is to make sure that the world does not speak poorly of us. And this this fear of being spoken poorly of can, can cause us to compromise the other way. An example would sound like this. I don't want my neighbors to think poorly of Jesus or, or me, so I won't tell them that sleeping and living together before marriage is not acceptable to God. Let us not overlook the phrase, when they speak against you as evildoers. It is not a matter of if, but when. It is inevitable. It is not uncommon for his faithful church to be on the receiving end of, of attacks from groups such as the LGBTQ or pro-abortion communities. Those living in ignorance will always speak in opposition against the church slandering Christ's bride. So we should not be shocked when confronted by slanders. Remember God's rebuke towards the serpent in in Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. This enmity has remained in the world from that point onwards. It even brought about the death of, of Jesus, sealing the victory for all believers. As God's children, then, it is important to turn back to the command, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that we can be reminded 
of what honorable is in God's eyes. There is no room for compromise when it comes to the Word. It is a battle of the wills. God's will versus our own. And we pray to be conformed to God's will. And since the the Gentiles or, or unbelievers act in their ignorance by speaking against Christians, there's ever more of a significance for the believer to do good deeds. As Peter explains in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And also in chapter 3, verse 16, where Peter writes, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The hope is, beloved, that the more and more good deeds that are done out of true faith by the believer, that this will eventually be noticed by the unbeliever. God may use these good deeds, the the pure conduct of Christians, to bring the unbeliever into his kingdom. We notice in chapter 3, verse 1, that the believing wife may win her husband over without a word. And in verse 2, we read that this may happen by her husband seeing, seeing her respectful and pure conduct. Without a word, beloved. What wonders the Holy Spirit can do. God causes the unbeliever to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from their their noticing of the deeds of his people. And the former unbeliever who now believes is united to Christ, claimed by him, and will be given the name Christian. And the newly converted Christian will glorify God. It is without a doubt a miracle. Let's reflect upon our current surroundings. Here we are as believers living in Ancaster, Ontario. Are we active and visible within our communities? Is there opportunities for unbelievers to look upon the good deeds of us as believers? Do we volunteer time at at soup kitchens to attend to the poor? Or do we go to old, old age homes to read and pray with the elderly? When a coworker is having a rough day, do we offer words of encouragement? Or do we turn and, and go about our own business? Business owners, do we operate with integrity that reflects a godly person? Children, when you are playing at the local park, 
Are you kind to the other boys and girls? There are so many other examples that, we can, that can be listed. Are we aware of the, of the potential impact of our actions? Let us take this exhortation by God seriously and be diligent in our walk of life so that if the Lord wills it, one day we may be able to call our, our workplace friend brother or sister in Christ. Or that neighbor that we stop to chat to when we go outside and do our yard work. We may be able to, we may be able to call that neighbor brother or sister in Christ. In both of these exhortations this morning, abstaining from the passions of the flesh and the, the command for believers to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable, we notice God's mercy and His love. In verse 11, Peter is concerned about the salvation of the believer. And in verse 12, he is concerned about the salvation of the unbeliever. And this is an incredible reminder that our God cares for, sustains, and governs all souls on earth. And he continues to gather all his elect for to himself in preparation for the day of visitation, which we notice at the end of verse 12. So that all who repent may glorify Jesus on that day when Christ returns. But we also witness his justice. For this is the reason Peter writes in verse 11, I urge you. I urge you. Because what follows concerns not only salvation, but judgment. So there is a, there is a need. A need for urgency. We on earth do not know when the bridegroom will appear to claim his bride. Nor do we know when we will die. John Owen, a 17th century theologian and pastor, put it this way. Satan's greatest success is in making people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. So beloved of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Christians living temporarily here on earth, do we truly love our neighbor as God does? Instinctively, we, we nod our heads, yes. Yes, I love my neighbor. Well then, as we, as we leave this church today, with our allegiance firmly established in Jesus Christ, let us, in the week ahead, surrender ourselves to these exhortations from the living Word. We ought to ask God to help us be particularly aware of our actions because those unconvinced may be watching. In this we should rejoice because since the gospel of Jesus Christ is reflected to those around us by our conduct, it means that the gospel may penetrate their hearts and they may come to know of the love of God. What this means is that when that moment comes when Jesus Christ, the good King, 
makes his incredible return. And if it is his good pleasure, we may share with those we love, whether it be that, that co-worker or that neighborhood friend, we may share with those we love the opportunity to glorify and exalt him on that day together. Lord, may it be so. Amen.